So, could you, could you even hear my prayer? I was probably mumbling, but now you can hear me. I, Joel, I thought you were volunteering to name the last five kings of Judah in order. No, okay, no. You were just telling me my microphone wasn't on. But someone will do it, right? Yeah? Okay. I'll do it. Oh, thank you, Paul. I'll try. You're the man. Josiah. Josiah. Jehoiah Haz, Jehoiah Kim, Jehoiah Chin, and uh, with a Z. Starts with a Z. Starts, who starts with a Z? Zedekiah. Zedekiah. Thank you. Am I... Am I doing something wrong? That rumble? How's that? Okay. And, um, and I quiz you on that, not to be, um, you know, a, a stereotypical college professor. But because um, one of the challenges in reading the book of Jeremiah is keeping track of the, the order of events in his life. And you've got a taste of that last week. And knowing the order of those kings will help. Um, and uh, of those three, who were the three that reigned a, a significant amount of time? Bob, I'm going to say Josiah, mm-hmm. um, Jehoiah um, Chin, and Zedekiah. Jehoiah Kim did. Jehoiah Kim reigned for 11 years. So Jehoahaz reigned for three months, Jehoiah Kim 11 years, Jehoiah Chin three months, Zedekiah 11 years. Probably I heard Jehoiah Chin, but it's, it's, it rhymes or it sounds similar. It's got assonance. I don't know. Um, okay, and then in what year did Jerusalem fall? Helpful, helpful number to have in your head when you're reading the Old Testament? 587. 587. Okay, good. We are surveying this summer the book of Jeremiah. And uh, if you don't have a a copy of the course calendar, I can give you one. Anybody else? And so to that end, we have been discussing week by week the main types of writing that you as a reader will encounter in this book as you read it. So, for example... Uh, we talked about descriptions of sin. That's a common thing for Jeremiah to do. And we used as our example the second chapter of the book of Jeremiah. We talked as well about invitations, calls to repent. And uh, we used as our example of that chapter 3. We talked about judgment, warnings about judgment. We used as our example of that chapter 4. Then we talked, we spent two weeks talking about Jeremiah's love of object lessons. He loves to use physical, ordinary, everyday 
things and, and, and actions to teach us spiritual truths. So we talked about the two pottery parables in chapters 18 and 19. And then last week with Aaron, we talked about the importance of biography in this book. It's a very common kind of writing in the book of Jeremiah. And we emphasized, because he emphasizes, uh, his own personal experience with persecution. And uh, Aaron read with you multiple passages, including chapters 11, 20, and 38. Um, Today, we're going to talk about the type of writing for which Jeremiah is perhaps best known. What type of writing is Jeremiah most famous for? Do you know what his nickname is? What's, what's the nickname for Jeremiah? He's the weeping prophet. We're, today we're going to talk about the many, many places in this book when Jeremiah complains, laments, grieves. I thought I'd begin by briefly looking at how the two greatest artists of them all portrayed Jeremiah as, as they read this book, as they thought about it. Um, here is the way Jeremiah looks. It's how he's portrayed on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo's portrait of Jeremiah. You see how he's all hunched over. His face in the shadow, looking down. His eyes are all lid. (laughs) You can't see the irises, you can't see the pupils. His mouth covered. Which reminds me of chapter 20, verse 9, a verse we're going to read today in 15, 20 minutes. A verse in which Jeremiah, it seems, is uh, so frustrated. His preaching has led to so much suffering that he thought he would try keeping God's word all bottled up inside. That didn't work, as we'll see. This is how Rembrandt pictures Jeremiah as he reads the book. All alone in a cave, Jerusalem burning in the distance. Again, looking down. He's not look if you were there, wouldn't you be looking at the city of David going up in smoke? No. Jeremiah is looking with the eyes of his mind at something internal, something spiritual. All alone. With, with 
with nothing to support him. You can't really tell here, but the word of God. The appearance of his appearance dominated by that furrowed brow. He is the weeping prophet. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because he identified so strongly with the people of God that their sufferings became his sufferings. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded, he says. The only time Jeremiah is mentioned in the books of Kings and Chronicles is when Josiah dies. Second Chronicles chapter 35 says, Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah. And according to tradition, what is the other book Jeremiah wrote? Lamentations. Strictly speaking, the book of Lamentations is anonymous. It doesn't, give us, it doesn't name the author, but traditionally it has always been identified as Jeremiah. Please turn to chapter 8. We're going to look at several passages this morning. We're going to focus on chapter 12, but be ready to look at other places as well. Let's start in chapter 8. I'm going to read, starting in verse 18... Chapter 8, verse 18. And um, you got to be kind of nimble here as you listen, because the one who speaks shifts in rapid succession. Most of what I'm about to read is Jeremiah himself speaking. But when you get to verse 19, the people speak. And then God speaks, and then the people speak again, and then it goes back to Jeremiah. So I'll pause at each of those shifts and try to track, okay? So beginning in verse 18, my joy is gone, grief is upon me, my heart is sick within me. Behold, The cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn, and dismay has taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? 
Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. That phrase, the daughter of my people, is a Hebrew idiom. It's not saying that the people had a daughter named Sally that he's talking about. No, no. This is what we call um, a a defining genitive. It's like if you said the city of Carlisle. Right? We're not not saying... um, We're saying, we're defining which city we mean. And when Jeremiah refers to the daughter of my people, he's, he's, it's a, it's a, he's not saying the people's daughter. He's saying the, the, the daughter, which is my people. It's a way of saying how dear his countrymen are to Jeremiah. We might paraphrase it, my dear people. What would it be like to have to preach judgment for 40 years to people you love? Why in these verses is Jeremiah weeping? Over what is he sad? For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. Is there no balm in Gilead? He sees that these people are sick and he doesn't know how they're going to be healed. Let's turn to chapter 13. On August 6th, we're going to read chapter 13 carefully together and talk about the exile. This is the, the, the first sustained, clear warning about exile that we get in the book. What I want to read with you is the, 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 the bitter, bitter grief that Jeremiah feels as he teaches this. I want to read with you beginning in verse 15. Jeremiah 13, verse 15. Hear and give ear. Be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains. And while you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. But if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock 
has been taken captive. Why is he weeping? Over what does he grieve? He weeps because he sees so vividly what's coming for these people he loves. But sometimes in his grief, he does more than just weep. Sometimes he asks questions. Sometimes he asks really hard questions of God. In fact, in verse is in chapter 12, he says that he complains. Now, I taught my children not to complain. <laughs> How is it that Jeremiah gets to complain and Edward and Ray don't? Let's, um, let's turn in your Bible, maybe just one page, to chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 8. Jeremiah 14, verse 8. So Jeremiah, talking to God, O you hope of Israel, its Savior in time of trouble, why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man confused, like a mighty warrior who cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us, And we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Oh boy. Are we allowed to talk to God like that? Why should you be like a stranger in the land? What did Isaiah say that that child born of the virgin was going to be called? Emmanuel means what? God with us. That's the theme of Scripture. At the very climax of the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is going to repeat that promise. Why should God be like a stranger? Like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night. Like like someone who uses your, your guest room and moves on. Where is God when we need him most? Jeremiah complains because God seems negligent, absent. Now, emphasis on seems... Because already by the end of verse 9, he's confessing what he cognitively in his head knows to be true. You, Lord, are in the midst of us. Do not leave us. 
It's like the father of the epileptic boy. Uh, I believe, help my unbelief. Worse than seeming negligent, in verse beginning of verse 9, it almost seems like God sometimes is impotent, incompetent. Look at this. Why should you be like a man confused? Like a warrior who cannot save. Let's turn to chapter 12, where we're going to return to again and again this morning. Our main text is chapter 12. Now remember the context. You read chapter 11 last week with Aaron. Chapter 11 is um, the, uh, is um, a reference to Jeremiah's great Shiloh sermon, as we call it, when he contrasts the northern kingdom with the southern kingdom. Um, oh, actually, that was, that was earlier. That was chapter 7. Um, this is chapter 11 is um, a reference to the very beginning of Jeremiah's ministry under Josiah. Josiah finds the law in the temple and Jeremiah meets his first opposition. From where? Do you remember from last week? Who opposes Jeremiah's participation in this Reformation? His own hometown. And even worse, his own, his own family, as we'll see in chapter 12, verse, um, verse 6. And... Um, this then leads to complaint in chapter 12. As I read the first four verses, again, what is he complaining about? Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Let's stop right there. That's a great theme verse for our whole study today. That perhaps explains the difference between the the righteous complaining that we so often get in the book of Psalms and the, the, the wicked murmuring and grumbling that the apostles Paul and James and Peter all warn us against. This complaint begins with a confession of God's righteousness. So there's faith here. There's hope here. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. When it comes to a legal debate with Jehovah, Jeremiah doesn't stand a chance because Jehovah is righteous. But he's going to do it anyways. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their hearts. 
But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away because they said, He will not see our latter end. So obviously Jeremiah is personally hurt by, his, by the rejection of his home and his family. Verse 6, For even your brothers and the house of your father, this is God speaking to Jeremiah, even your brothers and the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you. Do not believe them, though they speak friendly words to you. So Jeremiah is hurt and, and, and God seems, what does God seem? Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. What kind of a God is that? Now, what? Really? <laughs> kind of going with what Jesus said about how he gives the rain to everyone, even though they're all sinners. So in a way, he's still merciful and he still provides for them. Wow. Yeah. You're a better man than, than me, Andrew. <laughs> that is absolutely right. Who said... John and I, we're, we have feet of clay... We read that, and we think God seems unfair. But Andrew knows what's unfair is that... Oh, never mind. It's like the reverse of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who rejects God. He thrives, right? How could that be? Yeah. Let's turn to chapter 20. Here's a third example of complaint. You read this last week. So Pashur, the priest, the chief officer in the house of the Lord, is not happy with Jeremiah's parable of the broken flask. And he beats Jeremiah, he tortures Jeremiah, and we get one of the bitterest complaints of the whole Bible. Let me read verses 7, all the way to the end of the chapter. What went through Jeremiah's mind during his night in those excruciating stocks? Verse 7, O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. 
For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. For I hear many whispering, terror is on every side. Denounce him, let us denounce him, say all my close friends, watching for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived, then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. Ah, but now comes the faith. This is good stuff. Listen to this. But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts, who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them. For to you have I committed my cause. And now this crescendo of faith climaxes with verse 13. Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord. For he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of evildoers. Cursed be the day on which I was born. This this shocking juxtaposition. How, how, How could verse... 13 and verse 14 come back to back. Cursed be the day on which I was born. The day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. A son is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Is that in the Bible? Such bitterness. But remember what you read last week. Jeremiah knew a life of repeated persecution. Repeated incarceration. Repeated beatings. This poem is a response to being tortured. And that's not the worst of it. The worst of it is the wound of the daughter of his people for whom there seems no physician. Is there no balm in Gilead? It's not just that God seems absent or incompetent or unjust. Sometimes It seems as if God is unfaithful. And all those promises about the steadfast love of the Lord, where are they?
Okay, so I know this is a strange thing to be talking about in Sunday school, but you get a lot of this. Well, maybe not a lot. You get a fair amount of this in the book of Jeremiah, and I want us to talk about it so you know what to do with it. Um, the Bible is a very realistic book. And Jesus never said that following him would be easy. Right? Uh, his yoke is easy. His burden is light. Um, but the way that leads to eternal life is, is, is narrow, right? And few take it. And um, it is actually uh, a, a, a support to our faith when we get these realistic depictions of the sufferings of these great men and women of faith and how they persevered, how God gave them the strength to persevere. Like, like at the end of Isaiah 40, on wings of, of eagles in the midst of all this sadness and grief. And God, we're told over and over again, wants us to come to him and talk to him about our troubles. That's a, that's a key part of prayer. He, he welcomes it. If nothing else, see from these passages that we've read in chapter 8, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, see an example for you and for me of going to prayer when we're sad and when we're confused. Well, how does God answer these complaints? One way he answers them is only implicit here in chapter 20, but I think it's obvious. When you read this, Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. What does that remind you of? What are you thinking of, reader, O oh reader of the book of Jeremiah? Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity because he did not kill me in the womb. When you think about Jeremiah in the womb, O reader of this book, what do you think of? Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? What are you thinking about when you think of uh, Jeremiah as a fetus? Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1. You see, Jeremiah had promises to get him through. To remember when he was sad and when he was confused. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. 
Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Why was Jeremiah even born if he was going to suffer and if he was going to see so much suffering? Well, God told him in verse 5. Jeremiah traces his troubles to the womb. (laughs) But God had promises that went back even farther before he was even conceived. And Jeremiah lived by those promises. And we can too. Maybe not this promise. God never said he was going to appoint you to be a prophet to the nations. Well, except for the doctrine of the prophethood of all believers. But anyways, uh, you know what I'm saying. This was, a, this was a promise specifically to Jeremiah. But are there promises God made to you? Oh, well, there are hundreds of them, right? Throughout the Bible. And they predate your conception. God made those promises to you long before your troubles began. And you'll keep every one of them. Ephesians 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 2, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. One answer to these questions is to remember the promises. And that's clearly what we saw Jeremiah doing in um, when we read. Uh, chapter 14, right? Why should you be like a stranger? Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. And then, in response to that promise, he prays, do not leave us. See how that works? When Job complained, how did God answer him? I think he said something about where were you when I made the foundations of the with with questions of his own. Right? He he confronts Job with his own godness. There's probably some better word for godness. It's divinity. And God does the same with Jeremiah. Look in chapter 12. We read verses 1 through 4. We read verse 6. But look what comes in between. Look at verse 5. Jeremiah 12, verse 5. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? 
And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? Now that's, that's poetry, but basically God is saying, you're complaining about that? You ain't seen nothing yet. Oh, thank you, God. That's really comforting and very reassuring. But it actually is, because God gave him a promise back in chapter 1. He, uh, he, he, he said, Behold, I make you this day a fortified city. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. Every time Jeremiah suffered, he was being prepared by God for what was going to come next. Derek Kidner writes of of this verse, as well as the end of Job in the book of Habakkuk, Psalm 74, God's answer is never philosophical, as though he owed us explanations, but always pastoral, to rebuke us, reorient us, or reassure us. For our own good, self-pity must be banished and facts be faced. If there is going to be an interrogation, God is going to ask the questions, writes Philip Ryken. We do not question God. God questions us. We do not place God under our microscope. God places us under his. Sometimes the best answer to my complaint are are questions that put me in my place. Bob was remembering from memory Job 38. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. When God's sarcastic, you're in trouble. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And it worked. In chapter 40, Job says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Remember Michelangelo's Jeremiah? I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. God had great things in store for Jeremiah, but Jeremiah would never achieve them unless he was willing to persevere in the little things. Thanks. So I guess my question, in light of the seemings at the bottom, 
And what you're saying now is, if are you saying that if we just keep an eye on the promises of God and know our finiteness, then that should put an end to complaining. He should have never, and we should never even articulate the complaints and pleadings in the first place. Remember your place, Job. If I just kind of grasp that, it seems that what you're saying is that our pleadings and complainings should never get off the ground. Is that where you're going? Well, I, I see no place where God rebukes him for the complaint. I, I would say God welcomes faithful expressions of, of, of confusion and fear and, and doubt. But then he gives us these promises so that that's not the final word. We... That, that the day is coming, if, if not before, certainly when we're glorified in heaven or when Jesus returns, when all doubting will be past. But I don't see God um, rebuking Jeremiah for asking these questions. He's just pressing him to move beyond them. That's my reading. But what do you think? Well, there does seem to be a tension when you say, hey, when God is sarcastic to you, you did something... Uh, uh, that well, probably you shouldn't have. You've gone a little too far there. So that's where I. That's where I. Sure. Yeah. I. I was. Mark has something to say. So when I, I look at this, I think about you know the pride that's involved. It's not about us. It's not about our family or people. It's about God. Mm-hmm. And when God answers Job, He's like, "Look, I know what I'm doing," and He's proving it. Amen. It, it may sound sarcastic, but it's just saying. Yeah. I know what's, what's needed to glorify me. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean he's not relational. It doesn't mean he's not compassionate. He deals with us one-on-one to try to help us to understand and to fit into that sonship. But, but when it all comes down to you know, the foundation of it, it's about him. And us complaining doesn't mean a whole lot when it's not about us. And yet God has such a love for us that he wants to teach us like a father. He's, he'll put up with that. Well said. And let me show you an example of God, like a father, condescending to Jeremiah and, and helping him to understand. Look at, back in chapter 12, we've read now, we read verses 1 through 4, then we read verse 6, then we went to verse, back to verse 5, but now let's read verse 7. This is fascinating to me. Chapter 12, verse 7. This is God speaking. I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. Try to hear the tone in this, okay? I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has lifted up her voice against me. Therefore, I hate her. Um, That, that is... um, Suffering even worse than Jeremiah's. 
I mean, anthropomorphized, God describing uh, his loss in, in very human terms. He's saying, look, you, 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 yes, Jeremiah, you have suffered. Yes, Jeremiah, these people that you're preaching to will suffer because of their sins. But uh, I, too, suffer. These are my beloved people who have rejected me. Your tragedy is a miniature of mine. And that's a New Testament teaching too, isn't it? We we learn in the book of Hebrews that our high priest knows all of what it means to be human. Paul in chapter 8 of of Romans says, uh, uh, He who gave his son, what will he not give us? All things, right? One of the ways God answers our complaints is by reassuring us that he knows. But of course, it's all part of his sovereign plan, and it ends with joy. If anyone has a right to complain, it's God. But of course, God is all good and all powerful, and through his sacrifice, he wins salvation for all his people. My favorite chapter in Jeremiah is chapter 31. And we're supposed to talk about it on the 13th of August. And I just can't wait for the 13th of August to get here. So I'm not going to wait. Would you turn to Jeremiah chapter 31? There's this remarkable little verse hidden in chapter 31. I think it's just it's one of the best verses in the whole Old Testament. And no one ever talks about it. Look at Jeremiah 31, verse 26. So, consider the context. Chapter 31 is when God, through Jeremiah, tells us about the new covenant that's coming, the the new covenant to which Jesus refers on Maundy Thursday uh, at at the time of, of the Last Supper. And Jeremiah learns all this, and then we read in verse 26, at this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. Isn't that great? Running through the whole Old Testament, there's this, there's this tension between the, the covenantal requirement that God's people love him and obey him on one hand, and their massive failure to love him and obey him on the other hand. Oh, of course, there were men and women of faith in the Old Testament. Aaron read Hebrews 11 last week. 
There were mighty men and women of faith. But they all shared a longing, I think a sometimes painful longing, to see that redemption realized. By faith, Old Testament saints knew for certain that the covenant would be kept, but how it would be kept was far from unclear, was far from clear. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? As Aaron read last week in Hebrews 11, verse 39, these mighty men of faith did not receive what was promised. They saw glimpses of what was promised. And it is interesting to me that the prophet who felt this longing this often painful longing most keenly, was the same prophet who was given the most sustained and detailed revelation of what we call the New Covenant, here in chapter 31, by which the Lord would fulfill his plan to redeem his people. At this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. Jeremiah remembered the promises. He remembered who God was. He knew that God knew. And um, his strength was renewed like that of a young man. Let's um, sing together hymn number 689. Let's stand and sing hymn 689.
Oh Lord, we are your people. We are called by your name and we know you are with us. Strengthen our faith, Lord. We thank you for prayer. We thank you for listening to us, for bearing with our frustrations and impatience. And we pray that uh, that great day would come soon when all uh, grief, disappointment, sorrow will be past. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.